0: Hello and welcome to a special hard news podcast for Knowledge at HEC. I'm the school's chief editor, Daniel Brown. Today, the dramatic events developing in Ukraine lead us to an in-depth look at a key factor behind the conflict, the question of energy. Not just the pipelines that bring Europe 40% of its natural gas and much of its oil, but also the knock-on effects on all energy sources that prop up our global economy. To do this, we turn to...
1: Good morning, Dan. I'm Jean-Michel Gauthier. I'm the Executive Director of the Energy and Finance Chair on the campus. I'm also a Professor of Finance. I've spent more than 30 years of my career in the energy business, uh, including uh, oil business for a vast number of years. And then I moved to the uh, energy consulting industry for 16 years as a, as a partner at Deloitte. Global National with Donna Friesen. Has happened. This is Ukraine's capital. What seemed unthinkable in the 21st century is now underway. After a edge,
0: Ukraine Ukraine is now a nation on at war. Just hours ago, Russian forces began their President Vladimir Putin.
1: Alors ce matin, je me trouvais à moins de 30 kilomètres de la frontière ukrainienne, et la zone commençait à être bombardée au petit matin. Extracts from the media
0: response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. February 24 used to be linked to Saint Modest Day. It celebrated the birth of Steve Jobs and Alain Prost. It marked the deaths of Tennessee Williams and Dinah Shore. From now on, it could be remembered by historians for Vladimir Putin's decision to attack his neighbor Ukraine. The Russian president has given several reasons justifying his invasion, but why now? And is it like some have suggested, really all about fossil fuels? To try and answer these questions, we turn to Jean-Michel Gauthier, whom we heard at the start of the podcast. We'll share company with this veteran of the energy business for the next 40 minutes, trying to understand what role energy is playing in this ongoing conflict and where it could lead us. But first, Jean-Michel clarifies what the natural
1: gas rushes exploiting actually is. In a nutshell, natural gas is a hydrocarbon, very much like oil and coal. I.e., it's a mix of atoms of carbon and hydrogen. But the thing is, natural gas it is not a highly concentrated form of uh, carbon. It's a diffuse type of energy which means that in a volume of natural gas you haven't got too many atoms of carbon which is the energy source that you are looking for or looking into which means that gas is extremely bulky it's diffuse and it's difficult to transport but gas is the cleanest of all fossil fuels including uh, coal oil or even wood, or even biomass. But this clean nature of gas is the flip side of it being a low calorific energy source. So clean, but not too much energy in it and difficult to transport.
0: Jean Michel, we're sitting in your office here on the HEC campus in Jouy-en-Josas, and in front of us, we have a, a very detailed map of the European gas pipeline system where we see these absolutely enormous uh, fields uh, or, or regions devoted to natural gas and its transport uh, westward. How important is this issue? Uh, concerning the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It didn't start a week ago when Russia decided to invade Ukraine, did it?
1: No, it did not. Uh, Actually, it's a very long-standing issue. It's a long-standing gas crisis, which is unfolding in the most tragic way. You've got on this map the reflection of uh, 70 years of European history. You've got... uh, You've got... Western Europe or Europe here, which is this uh, very small land mass with uh, limited uh, gas reserves. You've got the North Sea, you've got the Adriatic Sea. They used to account for 50% of our production, which we, which we call domestic production. Today, only 15 because we're talking about very old sedimentary basins, very old gas structures contribution to our gas supply, which means that the staggering 85% of our gas needs come through imports. What you can see on this map, the three major gas suppliers to Europe, historically, of course, Algeria. With this huge gas potential coming uh, via gas pipeline, but also natural, uh, liquefied natural gas. You've got Norway outside of the European Union, still a major contributor, major exporter of uh, pipe gas. And, of course, you've got the bulk, which you can see on this map, which is, of course, Russian gas contribution to our supply. And, of course, all these Ukrainian pipelines, exceptionally impressive to see, you know, about 10 pipelines, 56 inches each, coming all the way from the largest gas field in the world, which is located in northwest Siberia, all the way into Austria via Slovakia, etc., and then onwards into Italy uh, and and France. Uh, And of course you've got the latest born, i.e. the so-called Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, which are connecting Russia directly from uh, the Russian border uh, with Finland, all the way to Greifswald in eastern Germany. So we are in the big game, in the big geopolitical game.
0: Again, how have these tensions built up to the invasion of uh, Ukraine a week ago, uh, February 24th?
1: Okay, yeah. (laughs) I was actually shocked not to see uh, too many references to this long-standing gas crisis that we've had between Russia, Ukraine and Europe. This invasion of Ukraine uh, comes on the backdrop of a long-standing, escalating tension between Moscow and Kiev, of course. It goes all the way back to uh, sorting out the legacy of the long standing Soviet gas export contracts. So, just to cut a very long story short, Just to give people an idea of how long this tragedy has been in the pipeline, (laughs) we have to look back into 1991. 1991, the Soviet Union dissolves, disappears. But of course, there are the Soviet uh, gas exports. And uh, one gas contract, uh, actually, the Russian Federation that takes over Soviet Union, decides to stick to the terms of a gas contract under Soviet terms to supply gas to Ukraine and Georgia. This gas contract was essentially a contract based on gas supply at an exceptionally reduced price, whereby Ukraine, under Soviet times, would buy gas with a sort of 90% discount, And uh, Russia accepted to prolong, to extend this legacy Soviet gas contract to Ukraine and Georgia until 2009. 2009, the old Soviet legacy expires, a new gas contract is, is negotiated between Moscow and Kiev for the supply of gas to Kiev. This gas contract still includes a rebate, not 90%, but a rebate, The rationale for the rebate is all about military and Russian Navy. Because in those years, 2009, Crimea is Ukrainian. But Crimea is also home to Sevastopol and is also home to the Russian military ports. And the Russian military ports are home to the Russian military Navy. And uh, uh, Ukraine had the task to maintain the ports, and maintain the Russian fleet. So in consideration for this kind of operation and maintenance of the Russian military ports in Crimea, which were Ukrainian, Russia accepted, or Putin accepted, to uh, grant, to, award, to, to give a rebate on gas price. However, the gas price was still too high, ir- despite this rebate, and Ukraine could not pay and Ukraine accumulated unpaid gas bills over the years 2010, 11, 12, 14, up to the point where after all sorts of hiccups and crises, Gazprom took Ukraine or its Ukrainian opposite number to arbitration courts in Stockholm. And the arbitration courts has been going on and on and on. Tensions between the Russian energy company Gazprom and Ukraine's Naftogaz continue to rise. Recently, Gazprom has initiated international arbitration proceedings over the fine of more than $6 billion imposed on Russia by Ukraine's anti-monopoly committee. To talk more about this, we Ukraine's welcome to the studio company. today. Naftohas Naftohas and Russia's Gazprom member. concluded in a Stockholm court with the Russian state-owned gas monopoly ordered to pay $2,560,000,000 to Naftogaz. In response, Russia threatened to terminate its gas contracts with Ukraine and reneged on the agreement to restart gas supplies to Ukraine amid blizzard conditions. Russia still has to sell its gas to Europeans, so these massive quantities of gas. And uh, the major highway for uh, this gas supply to Europe still remained, after Crimea, after Lugansk and Donetsk, still remained the uh, Ukrainian gas pipelines. So Russia had to do something about it. And that gave gave rise in Russia to a gas policy, which is uh, elegantly called the gas transit diversification strategy, which bluntly means diversifying away from Ukraine, circumventing Ukraine, avoiding having to uh, go via Ukraine to sell gas. That gave rise to three projects. One, TurkStream via the Black Sea with gas landing at the border between Turkey and Bulgaria, and the other two Nord Stream projects, including Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, each of them with 55 billion cubic meters of gas supply per year. So the message was clear. The message was, you, Ukraine, we are going to get shot of you we're going to take Ukraine out of the gas map first before we take you out of the map uh, in general, politically. So gas-wise... Because
0: there's a huge dependency of the revenues generated by the transit of this gas.
1: That's exactly the point. So you pay a fee for uh, the use of the portion of pipeline that goes across transit countries, which means that Ukraine has been a big benefiter of hefty gas transit fees for the past three or four decades. And those transit fees have always been mentioned by Vladimir Putin himself as unnecessary revenues going to Ukraine and going to Ukrainian mafia uh, clubs or mafia groups. And one of the big messages that Putin has always been passing across to Berlin, to Brussels, to Paris, to that message was the problem you have, you Europeans, is not as a result of us, Russia, Posing a threat to you. We are no geopolitical threat. The problem you have, you Europeans, is that your gas supply hinges on the bad relationships that Moscow may or may not have with transit countries. So you Germans, you French, you keep referring to your dependence on Russia. In actual fact, If you want to have a smoother gas supply, you should increase your dependence on Russia rather than reducing it. We should get rid of those unnecessary gas transit countries and have direct pipelines connecting us. Why can't we have direct connection from the Russian beach all the way to the German beach uh, or the French beach, uh, etc.?
0: So how have the uh, (laughs) European countries been responding to uh, those messages from Putin over the
1: years? I mean, mixed feelings. Well, first, you remember that the US uh, department had a very, very strong feeling against Nord Stream from the start. The US administration uh, always attracted uh, the uh, European Union's attention to the fact that having a direct connection for a major gas supply uh, directly from Russia to Germany or to the EU was uh, a, a big threat and that we should not uh, buy too much into the Russian rhetoric, saying that by avoid, avoiding third-party countries, we would reduce the threat. Uh, Washington always said that we would increase the threat, and we we should not buy too much into this, this logic. And then, of course, there's been very different views on Nord Stream in Europe. Italy has been at, at points favorable and then more lukewarm. Germany has been relatively favorable to it, of course, because it's a direct supply. Eastern European uh, countries have been relatively, of course, because when you are Poland, you are also benefiting from gas transit fees. And Nord Stream going all the way via the Baltic is, is another loss of gas transit fees. So Poland was very much in the boat, in the same boat of Ukraine on this. So Europeans have been divided. Europe's energy crunch is fueling tensions with Russia. Moscow has denied restricting
0: gas deliveries to its neighbours, insisting they're to blame for their own problems. A key natural gas pipeline has been running in reverse from Germany to Poland after Russia stopped flows in the other direction. Meanwhile, Western Europe is sourcing extra supplies from the US as the energy crisis deepens. Critics say Gazprom, which has close ties to the Kremlin, is keeping delivery volumes low in order to put pressure on the EU. That spat stems from the EU position on the Ukraine conflict and the slow approval pace of the controversial Nord Stream 2 Baltic Sea pipeline. The situation is worsening. Jean-Michel, let's leap into this current conflict. As a consequence of uh, this invasion on February 24th, it's a, a week later, What consequences have there been on the gas's production, its transport, and its prices?
1: Prices of all energies had skyrocketed way before. That's the thing that has to be borne in mind. The uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine added another tragic level, and that is for a number of reasons. First, Gas prices have skyrocketed, but also electricity prices, but also coal prices, and of course oil prices, and also carbon prices. So we've got a perfect storm with all energy sources aligning and hitting record highs. What have caused this price crisis? We need to go back to probably the mid of last year, before the Omicron variant variant
0: of of COVID-19.
1: Absolutely, of COVID-19, at a point in time when uh, Europe started seeing a sort of light in the tunnel and and could see that we were gradually going to uh, move away from the COVID crisis. At that point in time... Europe finds itself with very, very low levels of gas inventories in storage. So when you're a big gas user like uh, the European Union, you need to have huge storage facilities, which, of course, we ordinary citizens do not see because they are buried underground. They are uh, out at sea. Uh, we don't see these massive cavities that store gas in bulk for the supply of the European Union to to weather the peaks and troughs of of demand, of prices, etc. Anyway, cutting a long story short, at the end of COVID crisis, we had very, very, little gas in storage. Why? Because during COVID crisis, gas demand had gone down, gas needs had evaporated, the gas uh, import contracts had been reduced to their very, very minimum take allowed by the contract. So in essence, all European gas companies had decided to reduce their gas purchases. And that's only normal because it's logical. You know, there was no need for gas. And during these these same COVID years, as gas companies had little revenues, etc., they'd rather empty the storage rather than buy more gas, you know, to convert gas in storage into cash, at least generate a bit of cash rather than paying for more gas. So at the end of the COVID crisis, European nations found them with very, very low gas level. On top of this, investment in gas have been scaled down, had been scaled down massively, because the priority over the past three, four years has been to prop up, support renewable energy capacity new build, to build new new wind, new solar, new renewable sources, and to move away from gas. So at the beginning of the crisis, we Europeans found ourselves in a situation where gas prices were low, gas tanks were low, gas demand was low. At that time, The Asian demand for gas had skyrocketed, which means that we rerouted all the LNG, liquefied natural gas vessels, uh, from Europe to Asia, because in Europe, they would attract a very low value, whilst the price was very, very high in in Tokyo or in in China. So no gas in storage, no gas demand, uh, and all LNG vessels being rerouted to Asia, where demand was high. And then all of a sudden, when I'm talking about September last year, 2021, the economy bounces back and demand comes back in Europe, big time, with a vengeance. All of a sudden, everyone goes back. It's the end of the confinement. It's the end of the uh, travel ban and restrictive measures. People are back into factories, uh, premises, and gas demand all all of a sudden flares up. Europe finds itself short of gas. And the adjustment factor, as would be the norm for any internationally traded commodity, prices just skyrocket. Allison, and when you talk about that impact, I want to show you what we're seeing here at this
0: gas station in Alexandria. So already, for a regular gallon of gasoline, it is close to
1: $4. And uh, we're expecting it to go up from there. In fact, overnight, the numbers spiking for Brent crude oil for uh, a barrel to about $100 a barrel for the first time since 2014 as Russia invades Ukraine. And we know that this is going to impact Americans in more ways than one. A knowledge at HEC podcast. at the same time the situation in Russia is uh, is a little different because Russia has a supplier has seen its gas sales being curtailed or reduced during the covid the central bank of Russia is certainly not in a good position the value of the ruble has has uh, dropped dramatically and Putin faces a very dire situation economically. But at the same time, Putin can see that uh, Europeans are going to find themselves short of gas, and that there is a possibility that uh, gas prices uh, start picking up or, or even skyrocket. And that formed a sort of window of opportunity for Putin to, uh, this is my interpretation, a window of opportunity for Putin to start acting, to start doing something. The EU had to start buying gas under long-term contract, but also buying gas on the uh, European spot market. The spot price for gas went up dramatically and uh, Gazprom saw this opportunity to maximize their gas sales, but only via contract, leaving the spot market alone and letting the gas prices skyrocket on the spot market. In addition to that, it is also fair to say that Russia definitely did reduce the gas flows via the Ukrainian pipelines and even via the Polish pipelines, via the Yamal pipeline, therefore reducing gas supplies. The question is still open. The jury is still out. Did Russia use its gas as a weapon? Why did Russia reduce the gas flows via Ukraine and Poland? Russia says that they were replenishing their own stocks, their own storage facilities, Uh, And they have a point because it did happen. They they did so indeed at the same time. But that entailed a major loss for the Eastern uh, European Republic, definitely. So the bottom line is gas prices pick up. As a result of picking up, they've, they've, be, they've pulled up electricity prices in Europe, and so did coal prices. When you see gas prices flare up, when you see oil prices shooting up, the only alternative is, of course, coal, because coal is a very abundant energy source. It's a highly concentrated energy source, and it's a competitive source. The only problem with coal is, of course, that its CO2 emissions kills us. We're all talking about coal obituary, coal being phased out, coal exiting the energy mix globally. We've seen coal prices yesterday reached $400 per tonne against a historical price of only 40 something completely uh, out of this world. So gas prices started first, then electricity, carbon, oil and coal. And we've, we've got the perfect storm today
0: it just shows inequality of energy resilience among European countries and the importance of having a common and driven move towards a more secure and nationally based or at least risk like diversified in terms of risk energy procurement sources for European countries. I do think that it has the important consequences most notably for example for Germany that will be Irrigated by the Nord Stream pipeline number two, and because they took a strong position against Russia, they might have energy consequences shortage, and it will force them to take a new energy policy with that respect towards more sustainable energy sources, which is positive. In a time when we're, you know, dealing with multiple crises, and you know, with global warming and the climate crisis becoming more relevant and also in the backdrop, in the context of a pandemic, I think it could have serious implications on the way of life in the West and or even you know, geopolitical uh, dynamics. The war and the aftermath sanctions are making it harder even to buy Russian crude even though they weren't included in the sanctions. I think they've been selling at a discount, so I think even with the old, recent old price jumps. We're seeing a lot more. I think the main thing is it's going to
1: accelerate the expansion of like LNG facilities across Europe.
0: Jean-Michel Gauthier, now there is this conflict in Ukraine. Nord Stream 2 has been stopped at the moment when it was going to open its valves and pour in natural gas in, into Europe directly. What consequences do you see of
1: this evolution? Well, the consequences could be terrifying. The most tragic consequence would be, a, as a result of military operations in Ukraine, uh, would be a serious damage to a critical infrastructure, i.e. pipeline. That would result not just in a curtailment of gas supply to Europe, which we see now, but that would result in gas supplies being entirely cut off, so something that will be impossible uh, to to compensate. The other impacts for Europe are uh, far-reaching. There are a number of them. Uh, we must not forget that Russia, in addition to be to being a major gas supplier, is also a major oil producer, is the third largest oil producer in the world. And uh, it's uh, one of the first two or three, top two or three oil suppliers to Europe. We are talking about something like half of Russia's oil exports are destined to Europe, which means that Europe imports something like 2.5 million barrels a day of oil every day. That could be cut off as a result of uh, Russian banks being taken away from SWIFT, from the SWIFT payment mechanism, just as a result of uh, Russia not being able to be paid for the oil it supplies to Europe. (coughs) On the Russian side, it's always been very, very clear that uh, energy sales from Russia to Europe, the Russian energy sales to Europe, accounted for something like 36%, so more than one third of the Russian Federation budget. With oil accounting for the bulk of it, Russian oil sales to Europe represent something like 30% of the Russian Federation budget, and gas sales only 6%. But this is because the taxes on gas are lower. So altogether, 36%. But there's more. There are more potential consequences for, for Europe, in particular in the nuclear industry. Something that still hasn't landed on our radar screen in Brussels is that when we are talking about uranium fuel supplies, we are talking about a complex mechanism that leads to the assembly of the uranium nuclear fuel. And uh, we keep forgetting that although France is, of course, a major player in enrichment and assembly, Rosatom the Russian uh, nuclear uh, giant, Rosatom accounts for 35% of global nuclear fuel assembly. The assembly means getting the nuclear fuel ready for being accepted in a nuclear reactor. So 35%, which means that the world of nuclear plant is going to hedge on Russian supplies. Mm. And of course, the big message is that uh, for us Europeans who have been intent upon getting our energy transition on the way, meeting carbon neutrality by 2050, developing uh, clean electricity generation mechanisms that are necessary to meet this carbon neutrality by 2050, which takes decades, which will take decades, we are finding ourselves in in a predicament. We are finding ourselves in a situation where there is no way whereby the sole wind and solar capacities are going to make up for the shortfall of Russian gas or Russian oil which means that our energy transition policy may may get derailed exceptionally. The only way to make up for the shortfall will be to go back to fossil fuels. So we are back again where we wanted to phase out oil, gas and coal, and we are right back into oil and gas and coal. Uh, As I keep saying to my students uh, on the campus, we must never overlook that a world that wants to go green and move into a carbon sober economy may still be completely derailed by fossil fuels coming back with a vengeance.
0: This is not real. This is not real, this is not real. This
1: isn't happening.
0: (laughs) This could be a complete disaster. This is already a disaster. Jean-Michel, can you see the EU joining forces, perhaps evolving in some of its attitudes in the face of this crisis?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a million dollar uh, question. The EU is still divided by its fuels, with countries like uh, Germany or Italy, are still highly reliant on fossil fuel supplies, countries like Spain having made a major breakthrough into renewable or France being still this very large nuclear power generation capacity sitting in the middle of Europe and Scandinavia being all hydro hydroelectric so the problem that the EU will have is to realize that it may be more difficult now to move to a 100% renewable uh, energy mix and that we will have to look for low-carbon alternatives, which today have been either untapped or completely overlooked. The untapped resource that definitely the European Union has not looked into is definitely biomass, biomass, forest to energy value chain making the most of uh, of uh, wood resources biofuels that will be clearly needed the other low carbon or carbon free energy resource that european union will have to come back to is definitely nuclear so we will be back into the big game i e the problem will be finding energy sources
0: and that means turning perhaps to the more unexpected alliances in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the big question today is what if? What if, you know, the 200 billion cubic meters of Russian gas flowing into the EU and partly Turkey uh, today, what if the, these 200 billion cubic meters, 40% of our gas supplies, goes missing? How are we going to make up for them? How are we going to replace uh, this shortfall? What are the alternatives? So the alternatives today, as we can see on this map, the alternatives could be more gas supplies from North Africa. But the exercise will be limited because gas pipelines are full and gas contracts allow for no room for, for any swing. And uh, the Algerian gas production is already hitting the limit. So there isn't much more potential than can be extracted from Northern Africa. Another alternative source could be more liquefied natural gas, more LNG. More LNG from Qatar, more LNG from Nigeria, from the United and States. of course, more LNG from the United States, from the US shale gas turned into a liquid for exports which we have seen landing on european beach beaches now for uh, a number of years but the problem there uh, is although yes we could ramp up lng uh, supplies the problem will be at destination when reaching the european beach the problem will be when it comes down to regasifying the LNG content of the vessels, of the methane tankers, the methane carriers. We have a regasification capacity around the EU that is, also, that is today operated at its almost full capacity, which means that there is no room for improvement. So the bottleneck will be on the receiving end. The bottleneck will be with the the, the capacity of receiving terminals that would not allow uh, to receive more vessels. So here again, we are hitting a bottleneck. We could import more gas from Azerbaijan. From Azerbaijan all the way through the Trans-Anatolian Pipeline across Turkey and then into the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline into Italy and then into uh, Southern Europe, uh, but there again the contracts are limited, and the and the pipeline is limited uh, limited as well. So whatever alternative we turn to, we are hitting we are facing bottlenecks. In fact, there could be an alternative which is, of course, Iran. That is going to be a tall order, because that means that in terms of geopolitics, moving away from Russia, we need to find an understanding with Iran, which we have portrayed as the devil for now a couple of decades or more which means that we need to go back to a nuclear agreement. There are all sorts of steps towards having more Iranian gas. We need to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran. Loosen we... the noose
0: around them in terms of uh, all the embargoes. and uh... Absolutely. We
1: need to, l- to make sure that sanctions are lifted, which means that we need to have an agreement with the US so that the sanctions are relaxed which the U.S. administration may or may not be ready to uh, agree to accept. And then there is the physical underlying. Then there's Iranian gas that needs to come from the ground. And we mustn't forget that after years and decades of sanctions since 1996, Iran has been falling short of the necessary revenues to finance its upstream and midstream gas energy system. Fundamentally, it means that Iran hasn't got, the Iranian facilities are not ready to, uh, to contemplate more production and a higher level of exports. And Iran needs to ramp up its production, which has been dormant since the, the uh, sanctions from the Trump administration. And that takes time, probably uh, years which means that any agreement with Iran is not going to translate into more gas anytime soon. There is a possibility of
0: these new alliances being created, Uh, strange bedfellows uh, perhaps, (laughs) EU-Iran, Russia-China also. Is this the new world order that could be peeking its head over the Ukraine-Russia war?
1: Absolutely. This is this is the new world order that we can see uh, in a nascent form that's kind of emerging if we want to make up for Russian uh, gas shortfall we need to have an understanding with the iranians so we need to uh, to find a new partnership with iran and at the same time by excluding all russian banks from the swift mechanism and moving away from russian supplies we are pushing russia uh, into the arms of the chinese so yes you are absolutely right the uh, the new world order might be eu with the Middle East trying to find the Middle East at large, trying to find a new, a new relationship and Russia being turned to the East.
0: Jean-Michel, in the short term, Europe is not immediately Mm. facing uh, a precipice of not having any natural gas and and oil from Russia. The foreign affairs article uh, just the other day was Mm. talking about enough storage to continue to live business as usual until the autumn of 2022.
1: Your analysis of this. To me, thinking that we can live on the existing quantities of gas that are in storage and the the thought that these quantities of gas could tide us over into autumn, to me, that is no good news at all. That is the worst news possible because it means that come autumn, we will have gas quantities in storage which will have dropped from 30% down to probably 10%. And we will have to buy a quantity of gas, which is going to confront the Europeans to a bigger bottlenecks that we have today. We must not forget that energy is all about logistics and capacity. The pipelines have been pipeline storage facilities, LNG regasification terminals have been designed for smooth operations with variation over the years, which are plus or minus one or two percent not moving from uh, 10% to 100 not a variation of an 80%. So uh, when we see that the gas in storage is down to uh, 30% its level, to me, that's the worst news. Because it means that yes, we can live until the autumn, we can have a good summer, no gas need, no gas consumption. But again, come autumn, what are the gas companies and gas sellers going to do? Uh, they will have to buy gas massively, and these quantities of gas that will be de- needed by then will by far exceed what the capacities can bring to, to Europe. There's a time bomb on the way. Jean Michel Gauthier, wow, thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you. <music> finance professor and executive director of the HEC energy and finance chair Jean-Michel Gauthier speaking to us on March the 3rd. Since then the Ukraine-Russia war enters its third week with its untold litany of violence and hardship for Ukrainian civilians and Russian soldiers fighting their brethren on the ground for Vladimir Putin. Much of what Professor Gauthier mapped out is coming to bear. Like the map he showed us, it underlines the importance of historical perspective and on-the-ground understanding of what has been at stake for the past 70 years. That's it for this special podcast edition of Knowledge at HEC. If you have any comments or questions, please address them to D at hec.fr. Goodbye.